Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 197 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. Today we are addressing all of your burning listener questions from men's health to mood to summer survival. We're doing all of the Q&A today and we had a really rock and run of Q&A episodes back in January um, and here we are you know, more than half a year out. That's kind of crazy. I know. I thought another Q and A, we just did those. And then I was like, Oh no, that was like in the episodes, one seventies. And here we are almost 30 episodes later. So it's time for Q and A. Allie does her best to keep up with all the DMS, but there's some that are just so good that I feel like can, you know, benefit more people. So we're sharing them today. Yes. So from men's health, covering testosterone, hair loss, and hypertension, as well as food-specific questions, we'll be covering dermatitis, depression, our take on vegetarianism, and how to detox after chlorine exposure, and so much more in between. Today is your listener questions addressed in this Q&A episode. And if you love the Q&A style, just a couple of episodes to reference to see if maybe one of your questions has gotten answered already. 170 was all things keto Q&A, 172 was all things hormones Q&A, and then 176, we did a Q&A grab bag, much like we'll be doing today. Yes. So before we get ripping into men's health as our opening topic of this episode, I want to give a word from Fond Bone Broth, which is today's opening sponsor. So Fond is truly wellness well made. They are slow simmered bone broths, lovingly tendered from simmer to seal. Fond is made exclusively in stainless steel with well water, and this is also tested daily for excellence, and that also maintains natural occurring mineral balance. They use free-range chickens, so they have quality sources from their animal products all the way to the organic farms that they partner with, and they use iconic beautiful glass jars that I love to reuse. Uh, You can store these shelf-stable, and they do have the jiggle of the gelatin and collagen within each bag. They use backs and feet of chickens so that you get that fantastic glutamine for bone broth and connective tissue support. What I love about Fond is that they are absolutely delicious, like truly your sous chef in a jar. Adding them to deglaze your pans or for a quick simmer or saute of vegetables is a great way to really take your flavor profile to the next level. And the flavor varieties are done in a functional manner, meaning that every ingredient is handpicked to optimize absorption of nutrients and taste. So it's like this synergistic relationship, like Becky and I both believe in so much with food as medicine. So their functional broths include like an anti-inflammatory broth, which combines turmeric with black pepper. We know that the biopurine in black pepper enhances the curcuminoid absorption. I've been really recently obsessed with the shiitake shallot and sage blend, which used to be called the youth tonic. We see so much fantastic literature on the benefit of shiitake mushrooms for enhancing the immune system. So again, taking that 
collagen connective tissue glutamine gut support of the bone broth and then supporting that with the shiitake for your immune enhancement and another flavor that i've been really into recently is the conductor which tastes like thanksgiving in a jar it is uh, butternut squash rosemary and smoky chipotle so this does not retain the carbohydrate content it actually uses like the skins and some of the flesh but then it discards and strains that back out so it's not a pureed soup these are sipping bone broths and i really encourage you guys guys go over to fondbonebroth.com slash pages slash Allie Miller. Uh, when you go over there, you'll see my landing page, a little picture of me and why I love fond bone broth. And when you put in the code Allie Miller RD at checkout, you will save on your first order. Again, the code is Allie Miller RD and go check out all of their delicious functional flavors at fondbonebroth.com. Yum. So, so good. All right, let's kick things off and we'll focus a little bit on the first part of this episode for the fellas. So I know a lot of questions today are kind of unisex, um, but we rarely focus exclusively on the guys or men's health issues. So we'll, we'll do our first three for the men's the male listener population, especially with, you know, Becky's pregnancy. (laughs) Uh, we've been talking more about, you know, all of her trimesters and we did another women's health episode as of recent. So I've been having the men on my Instagram be like, Hey, what about me? (laughs) And I do feel like a lot of our topics are unisex for sure. Like anything autoimmune, anything mood, neurological health, the general keto approaches. But as we are women, we tend to kind of focus on what happens in our bodies (laughs) with our listeners base. Exactly. So Father's Day was yesterday at the time of recording. So we'll, we'll give you guys a little bit of love. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Let's do it, girl. All right. This one comes from CA ski bum 888. I think it's like California. California is my guess. I always struggle with these names. So we'll see how I do. (laughs) (laughs) Help. I'm 32 years old and starting to experience some serious baldness. Let's dig into this one, some causes and some solutions. Yes. So we usually think that widely male baldness is genetics. And, you know, of course there is the element of nutrigenomics or how our nutritional status influences our genetic expression. But when we're talking about mechanisms of action, we do think a lot about DHT, which stands for dihydrotestosterone. And this is an endogenous androgen, sex steroid hormone. There is a particular enzyme pathway, which is to possibly have a genetic influence, and that can play a role on the formation of your DHT from testosterone in certain tissues, including the prostate, including the skin, the hair follicles, the liver, and the brain. And this can drive how the follicles regrow, um, and we see that they can come back thinner and less frequent with individuals that have that genetic predisposition. With that being said, what we do see as far as impact on like lab and areas to investigate, I do highly encourage testing your sex hormones. And when you're testing your sex hormones, I would recommend doing a hormone assessment that also looks into your adrenal gland function uh, so that we can see the impact of cortisol as well as DHEA in conjunction with your testosterone. And then um, we also would like to look at estrogen and progesterone levels even to really understand where sexual hormone balance is. 
Um, so I like to look at sex hormone. I like to look at screening initially, just like for women, both men and women, one of the first places to start with hair loss is thyroid and then assuring that you have optimal iron status in the body. So for thyroid, we do know that hypothyroidism or underactive thyroid can definitely drive hair thinning and hair loss. And I would highly encourage at least doing a TSH, free T3, and free T4. And then, you know, next level would be to add in those antibodies like the thyroid peroxidase and the antithyroglobulin. So getting those five biomarkers would be a pretty thorough entry point into assessing your thyroid, especially if this gentleman was also dealing with sluggish metabolism or belly fat gain or fatigue. That would be a great area to start. Now, in the world of anemia, the you know consideration there is that ferritin which is the storage marker of your iron in the body and ferritin levels can be more sensitively impacted uh, they can be influenced by toxic metals which can compete for receptor sites for iron in our red blood cells um, and then we can also see low levels based on nutritional status as well as inflammation in the body and conditions such as leaky gut so ferritin levels we really want to make sure that we're in a space where we can grow hair and once we dip below the 70s in our ferritin storage it becomes difficult to regrow hair and we can see hair loss as soon as the levels get into the 50s or below so ferritin and you know you might consider looking at your uh, anemia panel which would be in a CBC now you can still see low ferritin with your hemoglobin and hematocrit in range and so it would still be potentially a good tool to bring in the multi-defense with iron for a man who has a ferritin count that is lower than 75. And if their hemoglobin and hematocrit is on the lower end, and then to re-monitor that, and once that value gets into the 150 plus, the ferritin level, then going back to just the multi-defense. But the multi-defense or multi-defense with iron would be a great entry point. Again, I would only recommend men do with iron if they know that their ferritin is low. Um, but otherwise, the multi-defense in general, because it has a lot of those minerals and B vitamins. And this is another area that I would dig a little deeper with male pattern baldness or hair loss in general. Aside from iron, we want to look at things like zinc. We want to look at pantothenate or B5. We want to look at selenium, your folate, right? We think of follicle health with folate status in the body, as well as fat-soluble vitamins like A and D. Yep. And I've been using the um, thyroid optimizer supplement quite a bit with my male population as well, because that covers bases of our zinc, um, vitamin A in there as well, but maybe looking into a micronutrient panel potentially if we're not getting to the root of this as well. I think that's a great intervention. And the thyroid optimizer, you could definitely bring, I would say, preemptively without the sure. lab data. But that multi-defense with iron, I would only do that if we knew the ferritin was low, just because iron can be a pro-oxidant. Now, with women that are menstruating, I'm always going to be recommending that because monthly they're shedding blood. And so we want to maintain that iron supplementation. And then as you get into the prenatal world, the iron dosage goes higher with baby's demand and such. So less common for men to be deficient, but it's definitely possible based on some of the factors that you mentioned. Absolutely. I mean, some men have undiagnosed hemochromatosis, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. So right. definitely something to check for. And then we'd be watching the clearance of. So you know, there, there's so many different variances that can happen with red blood cell health. Um, so yes, most definitely those would be things to look for. And I would definitely connect the stress influence. Mm -hmm. So stress we know can drive the autoimmune alopecia 
hair loss, um, which is something to consider. But stress, even with the increase of cortisol and that interfering with the testosterone metabolism, that would be a good entry play as well. So I would say the adaptogen boost would be a supplement that I would layer in absolutely on the forefront. And then, um, as I mentioned, a lot of B vitamins play a big role, and we know that B vitamins are depleted with stress. So if you're already taking the multi-defense and you've layered in the adaptogen boost and maybe then the thyroid optimizer, the kind of last one I'd consider layering in is the B complex as well, just to get that full spectrum support. We know B vitamins are very safe. Many clients, including ourselves, tend to run chronically low sure. <laughs> in yep. B vitamins, even though we eat so many of the food sources, just because we're you know running the midnight oil and doing all the things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what about some foods of focus for hair loss and yeah. tricks up your sleeve? Yeah, so I would totally go for mineral-rich uh, sea foods. So we'd look for things like oysters, shellfish, great for zinc, great for selenium, great for B12, uh, wild-caught fish in general, also pro- providing that anti-inflammatory approach, which can help the body in any healing process or process of regeneration or growth. Uh, when we're talking about zinc in the foods and B vitamins, I would go pretty solid on your protein choices. So red meats like grass-fed lamb and grass-fed bison and uh, beef, as well as egg yolks. These are all going to be supportive for the nutrients required. Totally. And, and I think so many men are like, oh, it's just genetic. It's just going to happen. But it's good to know that there's at least a few boxes we can check and some labs we can run to kind of screen for other reasons that could be happening. Yeah. And just as, again, that beautiful synergy of food as medicine, as we mentioned, like the thyroid optimizer tool would also aid in body fat loss or, you know, favorable metabolic outcomes, which down the line can then reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease, but also make you feel more comfortable in your pants (laughs) and also, you know, support the, the more maybe vanity element of hair growth. And so there's all of these interlying um, connections of when we start with food, when we start with targeted nutritional support, those nutrients do so many different biochemical influences in the body that are going to yield a myriad of of beneficial outcomes. Okay. Awesome. So this next one also for the dudes, how do I increase testosterone levels? So I think a lot of men see, you know, people doing like the testosterone pellets and, and, um, some hormone replacement stuff, but how can we do that naturally? Yes. So it is important to first call out that we do see obese men or men that have higher body fat, especially that centralized obesity to have lower testosterone levels. Um, And so we also see on the latter end that vice versa, men that have genetic predisposition or just have lower testosterone levels tend to become more obese. And this is widely because our adipocytes or our body fat cells actually metabolize testosterone to estrogen. So our adipocytes are estrogenic. Um, This can lower our testosterone levels in the body. And then, you know, we also know that with increased body fat, we have lower levels of our sexual hormone binding globulin. And this is a protein that carries testosterone in the blood. So if you have less sexual hormone binding globulin, that means that you have less testosterone circulating through your body. So the testosterone is expressed lower. We also see an influence with sexual hormone binding globulin and insulin resistance. And this could be that mechanistic influence of the fat cells themselves, 
or also the stress of a high carbohydrate diet. So my first intervention to increase testosterone levels would be likely a low carbohydrate, likely ketogenic diet that is calorie restricted, um, that also, if possible, could employ intermittent fasting. Because we have seen in clinical research that things like HGH, our human growth hormone, goes up with intermittent fasting. So starting with just like a 16-8 of 16 hours of uh, fasted window, likely from like 8 p.m. until noon, and then that gentleman having a higher uh, protein, moderate fat, very low carbohydrate, two meals a day would be a great way to start to reset that button on testosterone. Yes, and then I think stress is worth mentioning here too, and we've alluded to this a little bit in the past with cortisol and testosterone kind of working in opposition of each other, but let's talk about that. Yeah, so we have seen in literature that chronically elevated cortisol levels can actually produce impotence and loss of libido in a lot of infertility research studies that they've done that can actually see a very strong trend for men that run in high levels of cortisol. And when we see that, we see an inhibition of testosterone production in the men. Um, and then that also is kind of chicken and egg because cortisol upregulates the uh, body fat storage as well as blood sugar dysregulation in the body. So cortisol is a glucocorticoid or a glucose producing steroid hormone. And we've seen in literature that it drives more of the visceral adipose tissue, which then drives more insulin resistance. So really harnessing the blood sugar control is a big piece of the puzzle. And I would do that again with time-restricted eating and carb restriction. And then the second piece of the puzzle is ensuring that you're getting ample sleep and that you're managing your stress during this period of time um, because this is when we get a lot of the regenerative function. This is when, like I said, you get more of that support for lean body mass. And we know that there is a strong relationship of your muscle mass and testosterone production. In fact, that's the greatest marker for female testosterone regulation is maintenance and um, gain of muscle mass. And we see that across the board in, in both genders. Um, so you could look at some labs as well if we're looking at testosterone. And the general testosterone labs, you'd want to look at your total testosterone, your free testosterone, and then your sexual hormone binding globulin as the bare minimum. And those would be done as a blood test. But I would also highly recommend doing your DHEA sulfate, which is a blood marker of your DHEA. And then, you know, you could do a blood marker of cortisol, but likely that's not sensitive enough to really get a good value or assessment. So you'd want to really do like a salivary assessment of cortisol, DHEA, and like I mentioned with the hair loss as well, estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, that will give us information on prostate health, that will give us information on if you are releasing estrogen from the body fat. And I would say this is also important, like we talk in the constructs of detox, this is also important in men that have lost weight. So maybe you're on the weight loss journey and everything was groovy and now all of a sudden you know you've lost 35 pounds and you're starting to lose muscle mass or you're starting to lose libido mm -hmm. or deal with sexual function issues in the bedroom this could be because of that aromatization of that that lost body fat of estrogenic cells driving declines in testosterone totally and then there's also nutrients of focus too like i think of zinc very often with testosterone status and vitamin d as well yeah, those two would be really important to monitor as well. And so if we're looking at supplementation interventions, 
definitely vitamin D would be one of the first ones that I would look at. Um, you know, it, it is going to play a huge role as a pro-hormone in the body and regulate inflammatory processes as well as influence the insulin resistance factor and thyroid and so many other things. Um, so ensuring that your vitamin D levels are above 50, really 50 to 100 is that gold standard. And otherwise supplementing with like the 5,000 IUs of vitamin D with a K1, K2 blend, like in our vitamin D balance blend, that would be appropriate also for the hair loss question. I sure. guess I didn't mention it back yeah. there. So the vitamin D balance blend would be a good tool in your tool belt. Um, we could also look at, um, for the testosterone area, that same mechanism of, again, stress management. So we mentioned adaptogen boost, but maybe we'd go a little further and do the whole stress manager bundle for this individual. Uh, so this could be like the calm and clear as well as the adaptogen boost and the GABA calm. And um, those players work in synergy really to maintain that parasympathetic space, which is that regulatory function where sex hormone is optimized in both women and men. I think we assign that maybe too much in the, in the female health sure. world, but it's equally important that men are in that parasympathetic space to regulate their hormone as well. Um, and then I would really push for a 10-day detox. I would say regardless, honestly, if, if this individual has lost weight or is just getting started, the 10-day detox would probably be the most influential kind of light switch in that sex, sex hormone reset um, to really liberate and, and remove the estrogen levels in that man's body so that the testosterone can be more expressed. It's also a really great jumpstart into clean eating if you've fallen off the wagon. Totally, yep. <laughs> and um, we'll start to lay out the guidance of what you know your future paleo approach to a lower carb diet would, would be like, whether that's keto or paleo, but somewhere in the middle there would be a sweet spot to find. Yep. And during the detox, you'd be bringing in the grass-fed whey protein on pretty high demand, which I think is a great habit to carry over to help to optimize muscle mass and testosterone status as well. Yes. And, you know, that's one of the beauty elements of keto is the muscle sparing effect. And so that should support um, muscle mass. And that's why even fasting and things like that can, again, enhance that HGH. Um, but, uh, like Becky mentioned, it is still important to get your biological protein and the grass fed whey would be a great source because it has a couple players in it, especially if it's a native way, like our grass fed non denatured way, this is going to give those branch chain amino acids to help to support the lean body, the lean body mass, uh, muscle mass in the body, which is going to boost metabolism. And also it has glutathione in there, which is going to support the liver in detoxification so the liver in clearing any of the um, release of the excess uh, estrogen levels which we don't want in the man's body okay awesome i think that's a good starting point of suggestions for testosterone um let's do one more for the dudes and then we'll take it a little bit more broad i think um so help me get off my blood pressure rx alice my blood pressure prescription i lost 27 pounds with your keto program and i was able to get off my metformin and lipitor yay that's awesome um but my blood pressure is still off requiring prescription i would love to be in charge of my health and drug free managing with nutrients i am just so far taking the wellness essentials grateful from a devoted male fan Okay, so the Wellness Essentials is our bundle of the multi-defense, the EPA, DHA, extra, and the Restore Baseline Probiotic. So this individual is getting a multivitamin, an omega-3, 
and then um, a probiotic daily. And, and yeah, that's awesome. 27 pounds down off two medications is a huge win. So the first question I guess I would ask this listener is, um, you know, have you employed exercise within your diet approach? Um, you know, this is where when we talk about resistance training versus cardio, when we are talking about heart health and we're talking about blood pressure, we can see that, you know, exercise is the biggest driver to help the heart use oxygen more efficiently. And that way it doesn't have to work as hard to pump blood. Um, so we can see lowered blood pressure by, you know, almost eight to six points from individuals that are hypertensive and employ a brisk walk and then, you know, work more in intervals. So this kind of more interval type training has been shown to be really successful for blood pressure in particular. And that would be with, you know, varying your speed, varying also your um, intensity in the sense of like, if you're able to do inclines and such, that would be a big piece of the puzzle to, to create that stress to the cardiovascular system to over time regulate and lower. The other thing I would bring into the puzzle aside from exercise um, would be the multoxin therapeutic foods, um, would be meditation, mindfulness, and stress management, which I feel like also in all these three men questions mm -hmm. has been a theme back totally. Right? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've seen actually in research that um, slow breathing, meditative practice, um, so Qigong, yoga, Tai Chi, these have all been shown to decrease stress hormones and the stress hormones in the body elevate renin, which is the kidney enzyme that raises your blood pressure. You know, we've talked about how aldosterone is made by the adrenal glands and that plays a role with your sodium retention. So there's a lot of connection of the stress hormone and the stress signaling and that driving up blood pressure. Um, but we have seen that there are clinical outcomes as far as hypertension when we do employ deep breathing, mindfulness, and relaxation, even as little as five minutes in the morning or night. And I would suggest really focusing on the four, seven, eight breath that I discuss in the anti-anxiety diet. Uh, this is where you inhale for four through your nose, you hold for seven, and then you whoosh out for eight um, so the first inhale your lips are sealed and that's just through the nose holding for seven and then exhaling with a like you're decompressing the air out of a, an inner tube that two to one exhale to inhale really puts us back into that parasympathetic regulatory function it stops the signals of the stress response directly impacting the vagus nerve which is the largest nerve of the body that goes from our brain stem through our colon so it literally gives signals to the body that it's not in survival mode that it is safe and that will clinically bring down blood pressure so this is a really important one because both there's that white coat syndrome of the acute response but there's also like i mentioned with renin and aldosterone hormonal impact of a chronic stress response actually coming in to interfere with blood pressure regulation Totally. And, and like you said, with the white coat syndrome, I think we'll get into a recommendation for that in a moment, but I'd be curious if this individual's checking their blood pressure at home and seeing if there is any influence of stress or maybe when they employ those deep breathing techniques, if it actually goes down and it's just elevated in the doctor's office too, because that's something to consider. Yes. And you know, I, we didn't get the name of the blood pressure medication, mm -hmm. but I would say usually 
the diuretic um, blood pressure medications are the quicker ones to come off of with weight loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tend to see fluid retention go down. Uh, we tend to see you know that influence and the beta blockers, which we do associate more with kind of anxiety stress response, are the ones that are a little bit less impacted by the weight loss. Have yep. you seen that clinically? Yeah, for I, sure. I have as well. Yep. And like participants in our keto group, often I'm like, hey, really watch and monitor your blood pressure as you're losing weight, especially if you're on one of those diuretic medications, because all of a sudden you can end up over medicated pretty quickly. And the connection of, you know, carbohydrates mm-hmm. holding your hydration status. Yep. So when you go very low carbohydrate, you can really be risk um, to be on a diuretic drug. So be mindful of that listeners on the other end of the spectrum, most definitely, and, and not throw off a Electrolytes. So in that con- conversation, one big electrolyte that we push for that's connected to blood pressure is magnesium. And, um, you know, I'm a huge proponent of magnesium bisglycinate, which is the neuromuscular influence on our magnesium. So this is what is going to support uh, your ideal vascular function as well as cardiovascular Cardiovascular is vascular function, I suppose, (laughs) heart and vascular function. Um, And that can play a big role in hypertension. We see magnesium deficiency as the number one nutrient of focus. Uh, So the relax and regulate would be one that I'd highly recommend that this individual bring in after the wellness essential bundle that he is doing. Um, And that is that combination of the magnesium bisglycinate and the and myo-inositol, which myo-inositol has really favorable effects on cholesterol regulation. So, you know, the fact that we're concerned about the blood pressure for the downstream impact on vascular function, we know that we get a favorable lipid metabolism shift with the inositol. We have the anxiolytic properties and the insomnia support from there. So getting the deeper sleep and the stress reduction will also hand in hand enhance that magnesium bisglycinate. So the relax and regulate like one to two scoops would be a great add-on. And then the other supplement intervention I'd play with would be the GABA Calm. Um, So this is biological inhibitory compound, a neurotransmitter that is biologically made via fermentation process. And the GABA Calm is a chewable release of the primary inhibitory or mellower out compound in the brain. It does have significant peripheral effects. Um, just for fun, go and check out on AllieMillerRD.com. That's our website. Uh, check out the GABACalm research section. I have at least three studies highlighted in particular about how GABA is favorable for hypertension and heart health. Um, so not only does it reduce anxiety in the sense of like performance or getting on stage or flying in an airplane or going to the doctor, I think that's mm-hmm. what you were alluding yep. to, maybe taking a GABACalm before for that, that appointment. Um, but it also can enhance you getting in the zone. It can enhance athletic performance as well as um, concentration and focus. So it does not dumb you down. Um, it's non-sedative, but it is a great way to reduce that physiological stress response. Totally. And then, you know, also for this individual, maybe looking into some markers of vascular health and inflammation in their body if they haven't already. Um, So potentially running a CRP and homocysteine um, as well as LP little a is just markers of vascular integrity and and other areas that might be driving that blood pressure. I think that's a great point. And that's where then we would bring in a little bit more flavonoid support. Mm -hmm. So the EPA DHA extra in the wellness bundle that he's already taking will maintain the vessels to be elasticized and lubricated and also regulate the triglycerides. We see fantastic uh, outcomes with omega-3s aiding in reducing triglyceride levels. Um, But we might need something like inflamazyme added to the picture, which would have those proteolytic enzymes 
uh, which play a role with coagulation and um, clotting factors, as well as platelet aggregation or basically buildup of cells that would be more prone towards thickening um, and causing that hypertensive effect or the cardiovascular risk association. So I think those are all good, good things to look into. Sure. And what about some foods of focus? (laughs) So for the magnesium, you know, I would first start with leafy greens. And I'm assuming if if he is a good student of our keto program, (laughs) he knows that we recommend two to three cups of leafy greens every single day. Um, But maybe that's fallen off the wayside. So get those back in. Um, really fantastic. We know that, you know, the chlorophyll molecule has magnesium in its integrity. And so all leafy greens, anything that's really green pigmented is, will be a good source of magnesium, but leafy greens, fantastic. And, you know, low calorie, um, low carbohydrate. So easy to get that in for satiety and volume as well as the, uh, magnesium effect. And then I love to recommend chocolate. And um, there was research that was done on the flavanols um, that play a big role in the cacao. So 70 plus percent cocoa or cacao concentration. Um, There was a study done by Harvard that saw 18% of patients that ate dark chocolate every day saw blood pressure decrease. Um, So, hey, that's not bad odds. And we do see that those flavanols can play a role with elasticity and assist blood flow. And then hibiscus tea is probably the most compelling flavonoid, I would say, uh, compound out there. So hibiscus has been shown uh, to lower the systolic blood pressure by seven points in six weeks on average. And this was done by Tufts University. And that's on par with the results of many prescription medications. So maybe he could bring in the relax and regulate on a daily basis and the hibiscus tea as a cold infusion and then continue to monitor blood pressure and then see if those two interventions, I always like to add legs to a stool before you know mm-hmm. considering removing any prescriptive aid. But then that would set the table to have that conversation with your practitioner once you've gotten things optimized with food as medicine and supplements support. Totally. Iced hibiscus tea sounds kind of amazing. You could even like throw some berries in there to add some extra antioxidant support as well. Absolutely. All right. Let's do this one. Not men related anymore. Um, well, I think hypertension is kind of everyone, but <laughs> yeah. was asked by <laughs> a gentleman. Yep. So. Yep. Um, do you recommend gluten-free from birth for children? Do children need wheat? What about the sourdough trend? Okay. So <laughs> there's, that's a loaded question. I know, right? <laughs> um, so my, my, when we're talking about from birth, um, and we will talk a lot more about all of this with uh, Becky's new baby, um, but my biggest thing about from birth is that it does take the first real two years of age for the epithelial lining to complete its formation and integrity in babies. So those first two year food choices are really important, especially if the baby had some risk factor association associated with their microbiome based on delivery. So for instance, you know, Stella was emergency C-section. So she missed that vaginal inoculation. So I put her in a higher risk factor. Or if my family had a strong trend of Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or inflammatory bowel disease, I would put her in a higher risk factor association. Um, if, If I had strong family history or she was demonstrating signs of asthma, allergies, dermatitis, I would put that in a strong associated risk factor or even a lot of ear, nose, and throat stuff like rhinitis, um, so chronic runny nose, ear infections. This would be another area where I'd say, so if, if your child is at risk from any of those things or past children and you're having a new baby, these would be areas to put them a little bit more in a conservative um, 
area. Is there any ones that I'm missing, Becky, in, in that um, world? MTHF farm would be a big one if you have a known trend there, I think, just mm-hmm. because of the reenrichment. Flower in general. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the next. So then like the genetic element. Mm-hmm. But as far as gut integrity. Sure. I think those are the big ones. So mm-hmm. if your child has been treated with antibiotics, you know, high risk for any of those things, autoimmune conditions, or had a sterilized birth process, this is where I'd be really tight on those first two years of age, really trying to keep that child grain free in my perspective and understanding of immunology, my understanding of gut integrity and of lectins, gut damage, and the kind of cost to benefit ratio. Now, the next question being, you know, do children need wheat? Um, I have a really quick answer to that, and the answer would be no. Nope. <laughs> um, there's no essential nutrient that wheat provides that we cannot get from other whole food sources. And within that construct, there's no essential nutrient that a grain uh, provides that we can't get from other whole food sources. So I would say no there. And um, before I go into the sourdough trend, I want to just talk a little bit more about you know flour as a food. And so when we're eliminating gluten from birth and we're eliminating other processed products because that would be the consideration you know just because it's gluten-free doesn't mean that they should have Udi's toast you know I'm talking about trying to keep the child grain-free for the first two years of life if they are in that risk association the the reason why I avoid flour in general is flour is void of nutrient density that's why it's synthetically re-enriched so you know we saw since 1941 That was when the laws in the United States required enrichment of processed wheat flour because there was such a rise of neural tube defect and um, malformations and birth defects because we had switched to flour and we weren't we were losing all the nutrient density basically Um, because we in flour foods we don't have the bran and the germ of the of the grain and that's the most nutrient-rich parts so the bran and the germ are removed to make flour and then often flour is bleached because we want to protect the oxidation and the rancidity so that's going to preserve it further Um, that further bleaching can really be a stressor to the gut as far as microbiome balance And then, you know, the concern as far as the enrichment is that now all flour, whether it's non-bleached or bleached, it still is synthetically re-enriched. And it's by synthetic, I mean that it's not re-enriched with nature-made folate, which is what would be found in the bran and the germ. It's synthetically enriched with folic acid. So we know that up to 60% of the population has some genetic mutation on MTHFR, the methylene tetrahydrofolase reductase enzyme. And so if that individual gets folic acid in many of their foods, many of their feeds have these synthetically re-enriched flours. So this is any cracker, cookie, bread, um, you know, baby's first foods classically, you know, mm-hmm. as far as like the synthetically re-enriched rice cereals puffs, and oatmeal. Like and, those yeah, teething puffs. All yeah. The pu- anything that's enriched, yeah. right? Um, you know, then they are getting higher amounts of synthetic folic acid than really the body was designed to be. I mean, it's, it's a foreign substrate. The body doesn't know what to do with it. And for MTHFR children specifically, it can be high risk towards autism as well as neurological impact and interfere with their methylation process, which plays a role with building and excreting. So they can have a hindered detox process. They can also have a hindered process of producing neurotransmitters. Totally. And just point blank when they're eating all that crappy stuff 
you know, you're not making as much room for nutrient dense foods. So just keeping that out is going to ensure you're getting maybe some almond flour based baked goods. Like once they're ready to try that after, you know, let it still start that like one and a half or so, or. Yeah. I would, yeah. I would say at least 18 months, sure. um, was about when she, and, and it was so funny because her first, well, her first ever nut flour based, uh, deal was her first, uh, baby cake. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was banana mash and it was coconut flour mm-hmm. in there. It was just coconut flour, banana, coconut oil, and like tons of eggs, I think. A lot of yeah. eggs. I think like 12 <laughs> eggs. Yeah. It's basically like an egg. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And um, she even that, like that was too dry mm-hmm. and weird of a texture for her because most of her foods were wet. Like sure. blueberry. She was a berry hound always. And like, so her, you know, I've talked about her progression of diet, but avocado, salmon, um, burger, those types of things from grass-fed beef. So dry foods didn't really resonate with her in any of those types of things. And it took her until really like two and a half to like even get in on the like low-carb cookie from almond flour and and muffins and those types of things. And she still needs a lot of butter (laughs) to eat a muffin. She's like, that's dry, mom. So so let's kind of unpack the the sourdough trend. Yeah, Um, I think that's come up really big with um, shelter in place. Everyone's learning to make sourdough, which I appreciate. Like the, you know, return to kind of more ancestral, slow food. food. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. let's talk about it. Yeah. So the concern aside from the enrichment process, um, and you know, if you're not eating a processed diet, the question would be, so like, you know, how much is too much and what would be a good, better, best? So the concerns with gluten, again, in general, aside from the flour enrichment, is the gliadin, which is that pro-inflammatory protein in the gluten. And this interacts with zonulin, which can interfere with gut integrity. Um, The gluteomorphin, also another compound from the gluten grain, crosses the blood-brain barrier and can interfere with our opioid receptors. So there are other mechanisms when we're talking about gut integrity, as well as uh, neurological health and mood stability from wheat and, you know, gluten impact in the body. Now, the interesting element of sourdough is that the lactic acid bacteria that is present in the um, like mother culture um, of the sourdough, which you kind of keep alive and then per batch you kind of maintain that, that, that mother culture, this does convert the sugars in the wheat flour to lactic acid and that increases the acidity and a really good sourdough has that like really tangy. I remember I used to eat at this restaurant called Feast um, in Houston and they had like a Michael Pollan quote on the menu and that was my like tale of eating gluten. I brought it back into my diet after following GAPS protocol and I was able to do their sourdough bread and it was like really sour. Like mm-hmm. I mean, you would, you would, you would pull saliva when you take a bite of that crust. Um, but so that it, as that acidity increases from that fermentation, that does facilitate the hydrolysis or the breaking of the gliadin proteins. And it does penetrate and loosen up the network of gluten. So it activates enzymes within the wheat flour itself, which work in an acidic condition. And again, that acidity is enhanced by the lactic acid bacteria. And so we have seen that this can break down the wheat proteins, including the gliadin and the non-gluten proteins um, by factors of greater than 50% in a 24-hour period. So it, it is possible that the bacteria and the enzymes that play a role in cleaving gliadin do um, break this down before the gliadin actually hits the gut. 
Um, and so that would be less influential. However, of course, if celiac, if having mm-hmm. a you know severe, um, an actual uh, genetic influence from a gluten intolerance genetic or a known inflammatory response, um, I haven't dipped my toe into the water yet since I've you know determined that for me after my emergency C-section, anytime I'm exposed to gluten, it feels like a scalpel cutting my intestines. So I have not gone there and tried it. But I do think it is less influential. I do think that the fact of, again, it's like that idea of eating French fries from fast food or making French fries mm-hmm. yourself. Sure. You, If you can control all the conditions, like you're cooking your French fries in lard and you're searing them yourself, you're not going to have them as frequency as a drive-through and you're not going to have the industrialized oils. You're not going to have the preservatives, additives. Same thing with sourdough. If you're making your own bread from home, mm-hmm. that laborious process and the time and the energy and the love that goes into that is probably cost to benefit net neutral, I would say if your GI tolerates it. And you could still use the digestate enzyme um, with that DPP-4 to still influence and reduce that gluteomorphin and some of the potential residual inflammatory impact. And then I would just say, you know, watch your body and and your reactivity. Totally. And and look at the type of flour you're using too. Is it an heirloom varietal flour that isn't going to have as much of that gluten um, and gliadin influence like as well. Like the einkorn. Yeah. Yep. The einkorn wheat. And, and you could play with a sprouted sourdough. Uh, and if the sprouted grain flour, that would then not be synthetically re-enriched. Um, but I've heard and read on multiple blogs that that can be really tricky to get mm-hmm. a good rise in a mouthfeel. Like yep. a, it's sometimes too heavy to really get a true sourdough per se. Yep. So there you go. All right. Um, how about this one? Best way to address gallstones. What's the best diet? What are supplements to consider? So I feel like we always talk about gallbladder function in idea of, can I do the keto diet Mm -hmm. with, with gallbladder stagnation or gallstones or, um, with my, with post cholecystectomy or gallbladder removal. Um, and so the thing I would say first off is support detoxification in your body if you have gallstones. So, you know, we want to ensure that you are driving bile flow. Um, and so you want to support the liver in that. And the Reset, Restore, Renew detox packs would be a really good entry point. I would say doing the 10 day detox in the way that it's developed with the packs kind of increasing up the bell curve and the diet component of the 10 day detox would be a really great jump start because you're going to be incorporating things like lemon and bitters and high amounts of fiber and eindol three carbonyls and um, drivers that are going to support bile flow and enhance liver function and then keeping with a pack at night i would say ongoing really to support that gallbladder function would be appropriate as well because the liver is kind of more stagnant as you sleep Um, But I think that insoluble fiber is another really important thing to discuss. So I have clinically used phytofiber with clients that have had gallstones because we do see that insoluble fiber can, you know, speed up the intestinal transit time and it does reduce the secretion of bile acids. And we've seen that excessive amounts of bile acids that are sitting can tend to contribute to the gallbladder or gallstone formation in the gallbladder. So, um, you know, that's a really important piece of the puzzle. And then that fiber itself also can increase insulin sensitivity, can lower triglycerides. And, um, you know, we can get insoluble fiber from our, you know, nuts and seeds, from our leafy greens, from our cucumbers, our zucchini. 
and so forth. Um, but we do see that the phytofiber could be a great add-on to continue to kind of drive that motility and that movement and kind of soak up some of the excess that's sitting there in the stagnation. Totally. And then digestate would be a big recommendation if you don't have a gallbladder or if you've just been prone to gallstones in the past as well. Yeah. Or, I mean, if you have fat intolerance, sure. you know, if you're, mm-hmm. if you know that you're doing a higher fat diet, like a keto diet and, or when you eat higher fat foods that they cause digestive distress, you know, that would be one that I would say most definitely the digestate because it has that ox bile in there. And, um, so that's not going to contribute to stones cause it's not sitting, it's moving through the system. And then you are going to be getting that lipase to break down lipids and, and the whole, the whole picture to also help break down vegetable fibers. So you can tolerate more fiber and all of the good things. Yep. And we went into that question more in the keto Q and a, um, episode that I referenced at the beginning of this episode too. So if you're specifically wanting to know more about doing keto without a gallbladder, go back and listen to that one as well. Awesome. So before we take a couple more Q and a questions, I want to share with you guys our new sponsor, do fasting. So y'all know that Becky and I are proponents of intermittent fasting, and we find that it's a great way to lose weight as well as improve health outcomes. When you give your body a break from frequency of eating, we see blood insulin levels and glucose levels drop quite dynamically. In fact, intermittent fasting is one of the best ways that you can enhance insulin sensitivity or the signaling of your body by not continuing to feed your body and stress its system. We also know that fat burning can increase with intermittent fasting and that we can get that upregulation of detoxification and autophagy or the cellular cleaning for your system. So Adu Fasting is a company that created an app to create a custom fasting plan based on your lifestyle, your work, your schedule, your fitness goals, dietary restrictions, and even the ingredients you like. You can get your own personalized intermittent fasting app with their special offer when you go over to dofasting.com. That's www.dofasting.com. You can fill out their short questionnaire. You can select the six-month subscription plan. And when you enter the code AllieMillerRD, you will get 50% off. So you'll get six months free of charge. Yes. And this is a great way. I took the quiz over there on dofasting.com. It took like one or two minutes to just put in my fitness goals, you know, current weight, all of that. Um, and they will provide you with a tracking app, um, to actually track your fasts, your records and success, log your calories, weight, water intake. Um, and there's also tips for meal prep, online workouts, as well as their 28 day fasting challenge. Yeah, and the online workouts I was really excited about as a tool to support our listeners and clients because it is at-home workouts without equipment. Yes. <laughs> so we're always like saying, I don't know how many times I say, like, if you could just incorporate five minutes of abdominals, this would really accelerate your outcome. So I was excited that this gives really comprehensive support for you. Um, so go on over to dofasting.com, put in the code AllieMillerRD at checkout so that you can experience a personalized fasting app with comprehensive support um, and, and you will get 50% off for six month plan with six months free of charge when you use Allie Miller RD at your checkout. 
All right, let's do the question about probiotics for kids. I believe it was, oh, here it is. When is a good time slash, slash age to switch from kids biotic to restore baseline probiotic? When's best time of day for kids to take this empty belly and then eat after? Yeah. So, you know, really it depends on as far as the kids biotic versus restore baseline versus targeted or spectrum. Um, we do have an awesome probiotic guide that, um, we will link in the show notes and maybe we'll try to do this week as like a promo somewhere so you can all see it. It's a lot of text for like a screen share, Mm -hmm. but it helps you to understand, you know, if your child, for instance, ran with, um, cradle cap or, uh, some fungal tendencies of candidiasis, let's say that they had, um, athlete's feet or, um, other dermatological concerns, then we would probably say actually that individual should do the, uh, rebuild spectrum probiotic, which is our green capsule, which has the Saccharomyces boulardii in there and all the probiotic capsules, that's 30 billion CFUs per capsule. Um, but that would be one that has, you know, those antifungal support and would be the more appropriate one if we perceive dysbiosis. Uh, or again, yeast overgrowth in the body. Now that one has 30 billion CFUs per capsule, but I mean, I've used even my targeted strength probiotic, which is four times the potency of the restore baseline, providing 60 billion CFUs of just the lacto and bifido strains. That's the one that we use more for inflammatory bowel or autoimmune condition. Um, I've had, you know, a four-year-old with Crohn's or, you know, an individual that has had blood in the stool on the targeted strength at any age. And again, you can open the capsule Mm -hmm. and put it in a single bite of food. Um, with that being said, uh, generally I would switch from the kids biotic, which most kiddos, I would say the kids biotic, you can start as, as soon as they can safely chew and swallow. So you can start to crush or break one of the tablets as soon as, you know, 12 plus months of age. Um, The bottle will read two, but that's just because of the concern of a potential choke hazard. So you could be mindful of crushing, you know, one starting at 12 months, and that could go into bites of food or even could be, um, it's just really making sure that if they can't chew, you don't want chunks, right? Um, And then, you know, working at the two tablets from age two onward, And, um, once the child reaches, you know, age seven is really where I would transition them from the chew to the capsule. Um, if easier though, to stick with the chew until nine, as soon as they can swallow a capsule, I would most definitely switch them to the restore baseline, which is 15 billion instead of the 10 billion that they get in the two chews. So you're just kind of by weight once they hit, you know, over that 60 pound threshold is when it would be a good time to bump them up. But if it's the convenience factor truly of opening a capsule every night, and maybe that's going to limit their probiotic use, maybe adding that third tablet Mm -hmm. would make more sense. And then you do the capsule again, as soon as they can swallow. So that might be at 70 pounds of weight or age 11, and that would be reasonable as well. If it's a capsule and they're swallowing it as a capsule, I would definitely do it on an empty stomach, like right before bed. Obviously, if it's a capsule that you're opening and you have to include it the bite of food, I would still separate that from the mealtime and just do like the capsule on a bite of applesauce or yogurt or whatnot. Um, it could be mixed with nut butter, which is an easy thing that you can kind of do a couple in advance and little nut balls. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but watch the nut butter balls for choke hazard for toddlers as well, right? So be mindful of that. Um, but you could do that at still the end of the evening, not associated with the meal, but just kind of at that, that tail end. So still kind of an empty stomach. 
Um, but what I will say with the kids biotic, because it is grape flavored, um, you know, that grape does have a pretty dynamic polyphenol contribution from the tannins. And so it does um, impact teeth. And so I would not do the kids biotic at bed um, because that could stain the teeth. Um, I really would do the kids biotic at rise, like first thing when Stella gets up, she gets her kids biotic and then we make her breakfast. Um, so she gets the kids biotic and the multi-avail kids two and two first thing in the morning. And then probably 20 minutes later after she's reading some books and doing some like morning ritual, then she eats her breakfast. So she does have a little bit of an empty stomach and then we brush her teeth after that breakfast. So like all of the matter has been chewed through her teeth of both of the tablets. Um, and that's why I recommend spacing out chewables because otherwise if you're doing it right before bed, you may not with the toothbrush skills be getting all of that out. Um, they are non-cariogenic, they, they are, are you know, anti-cariogenic. So they're not going to have compounds that would cause cavities. It's just the coloration of sure. the teeth that I would say over time, you probably don't want that to, to impact teeth coloration. Yep. And, and cost benefit of building it into their routine at a time that works for you and works for yes. them. And they can feel empowered by, um, like every day before school, I take my kids biotics and I can support the buddies in my belly and they know what they're doing and, and why they're doing it regardless of timing. I think you're going to get, you know, good outcomes there. Most definitely. So yeah, it is kind of one of those loose, good, better, best elements. Mm -hmm. And like you said, Becky, exactly. That's where I wouldn't cut off. I would say seven could be the time when the biome would support from an extra 5 billion. So whether that sure. means at age seven, you go up to three chews or you go up to the capsule, I'm probably going to be doing the three chews yeah. <laughs> because unless Stella has to be swallowing pills, you know, I'm not going to be teaching her for the probiotic. It's just no. real life. You know? no. so. And I have seen you, um, you know, in the past, like open a capsule after she's had, you know, maybe a little bit of a stomach bug or oh, something's totally. going around at, at school too. So you could also use just the higher dosage probiotics in that way. I do that. I will layer in the Rebuild Spectrum, mm -hmm. which is again, the green capsule that's more wide uh, strain support for enhanced immune function for Stells, and I will just mix that into a bite of food for sure. All right, this one from Jocelyn Lau, I think. Um, how much sleep does my child need? What foods and other practices help support sleep for my child? So I'm not sure how old her child is, yes. but let's just talk kind of in general. Sure. So, um, ch children, I'm laughing because I think we were just talking over the weekend, Becky, or maybe mm -hmm. who knows, all the days are rolling into one about how I, I feel a little bit, uh, it's hard for me to speak on sleep issues because Stella was always such a good sleeper as like an infant and a baby. Um, I remember my pediatrician when I came to my six week appointment, I was like, Oh, she's, she's sleeping eight to 10 hours uninterrupted. <laughs> Do I need to wake her for blood sugar drops? Do I, you know, cause like everything he reads like, Oh, you know, no more than six yeah. hours. Yeah. And I, was like, I have she's friends that 10. set the timer at four hours. Uh -huh. like, oh my God. And he looks at me and he like puts his finger to his mouth and he's like, shh. <laughs> He's like, sleep is good. Don't be freaked out by anything else that you read. You let your child sleep. She's had no blood sugar drop issues. You know, she's going to be fine. Um, her growth is good. So you don't need to wake her up to feed her. <laughs> Thank God. So, um, but we have, as I shared with Stella's birthday episode, a little bit of backlog. So you can hear the updates on that um, a couple episodes back. But uh, children ages three to five should sleep 10 to 13 hours within 24 hour windows. That includes naps and the nighttime sleep. So 10 to 13 hours. And then children aged six to 12 should sleep nine to 12. So just one hour shaved off nine to 12 hours per 24 hour period on a regular basis to promote optimal health. 
Um, so Stella did away with naps easily at age two. <laughs> and um, But she does always get a minimum of 10 hours. And she's probably right there at like the the 10 and a half to a very rarely getting 12, I would say. Um, but mostly uninterrupted, generally speaking. Um, you know, the biggest thing that I think is so important for our kids during sleep is ritual and routine. So, you know, have something set up with mom and dad that are both, you know, partners in the household that is comparable in your nighttime routine. It's okay to have your own little flair on it. Um, but as we've discovered, like if Brady's too good at nighttime, then I never get a chance. So we do two books. Um, and then, uh, we do, uh, one song that I'll sing to her and then we'll maybe play a song and kind of lay and either like, um, do, uh, running our fingers up and down her arm or on her forehead or on her back to get like calming touch. Um, and that really works with kind of like breath and trust and release. And so that's kind of our flow. I also believe that darkness is absolutely essential. Um, there's just too many kiddos that are going to sleep in too bright mm-hmm. of a room. Um, I shared in a couple episodes ago that Stella just, you know, got the new like fear thing. And I'm not sure if that was pandemic influenced or whatnot, but she has been more scared of quote unquote bad guys and darkness and things. So we got her this, um, unicorn uh nightlight jojo i mean it's like from target whatever and it has a 15 minute timer and so she pushes that button and like that is like a moderate bright light it's not as bright as others and her nightlight is still in the bathroom so she keeps the we keep the bathroom door open but we don't keep a nightlight right by her um and so that at least allows this kind of like timeliness so when she is asleep it's a pitch dark Mm -hmm. sleeping space which does different brainwave impact than if kids I've seen kids go to sleep with their light on and the parents don't totally. on all day yep. all night long and I'm like no 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 that's <laughs> not optimal for rested brain nope. so um darkness routine ritual we're huge fans of sound machine um because you know we like to have music on or do things downstairs and we want her to have that constant white noise I think that's a big safety element too um and then supplement support relax and regulate is a really good option as is probiotics. So we just kind of harped on that. I mean, probiotics are such a great way to help a child to feel safe, to combat depression and anxiety and really support optimal mood and uh, brain chemistry. So I would say probiotics and relax and regulate are your best too. And you could do the relax and regulate towards the evening. And then there is good support if you're still struggling with your child and you're more than two weeks into establishing all of these things. Um, you know, there's good literature on uh, melatonin use being healthy for children. A lot of children can get an impact anywhere from 0.5 milligrams up to 1.5 milligrams. And there has been research associated with safety at three to five milligrams of use daily. And, you know, the cost to benefit again of even if that creates some level of sleep dependency, the fact that they're getting that neurogenesis and that deep release and relaxation is only going to enhance their cognitive function. Um, and I've over time become less and less concerned about melatonin dependency and more uh, proactive with melatonin based on the antioxidant capacity and um, you know some of the literature that we're seeing out there. Totally, all the benefits of that deep, restful sleep and higher melatonin levels, you know, would outweigh having to take something nightly. Um, we can link in the show notes to a good liquid option because our sleep support capsules would be a little bit too large. Yes, I'm not sure about some of the herbal constituents for little ones. Um, but I'll link the one that I personally use because I think I take a child dose of melatonin (laughs) as well. (laughs) You're like, yeah, two year old. Yeah. Yeah. 0.25 milligrams. (laughs) 
All right. Um, let's do this one. Um, I see you've been doing more swimming lately in the summertime. What are precautions with chlorine and water in summer? Great question. And I was really tight with Stella also with pool water. The first time she was ever in a chlorinated pool was after two years of age. Um, and her first, uh, pool and ocean experience was right at 23 months. And, uh, yeah, so right at two years. Yeah. I was just thinking Aruba. Yeah. May. So yeah, about two years of age. I I definitely wanted to hold off that entire first year because, you know, I had her genetics. She is homozygous MTHFR. So she has issues with detoxification. And furthermore, she has the GST1, um, which is what plays a role with her glutathione. And we know that that's that master antioxidant. And so chlorine can um, really interfere with neurological function and is a toxin. And especially in you know guts that can be permeated and all of the dance again, back full circle of that gluten conversation we had. So I was a little bit of a quote unquote psycho mom that like didn't have my baby in the pool. What we did do is we did water um, uh, pads, I guess they're called. Like splash pads. Yeah, splash pads. Yeah. Um, and so water table and splash pads in the yard um, and ideally, if you have you know whole house filtration, then that's best for your your uh, hose water. But even so, I would say hose water mm-hmm. from municipal water is still superior to chlorine. Sure. And so we would do that with Stella starting at like a year, and so she was like sitting up and pachi pachi in the water and splashing on the things, and and we even had then the point where we got the pink pool, which was like the like 16 maybe inches high or something like that, like a foot and a half maybe too. And then we would put her slide in and that was like more than enough for her. So she was raging with that and life was good. Um, And then I didn't really start taking her up to our neighborhood pool until she hit that two year mark. Um, And so then we started to do more swimming. And and so the big things that we look to do is um, create barriers for your barrier of your skin. So actually getting your child or yourself wet first before you go into the pool um, is a great way um, because we know dry skin, dehydrated skin is going to take in more of that chlorine. Um, And then a step further, which can work well, is um, coconut oil. So topically putting coconut oil about 30 minutes before you go into the pool or your child goes into the pool, that can block the absorption of chlorine on your dermatological barrier tissue. And um, that would be a a good way to also, there is some UV protection from coconut oil, but always after that first 30 minutes, I like to then apply a clean, like um, I use the the uh, beauty counter spray um, SPF in our household. So that's what goes on after that first 30 minutes. Um, Vitamin C is really important to ensure that you're optimizing. Uh, So I will do for Stella in the summer, and I have been really since COVID, um, been doing one capsule of the Bio C Plus about three times a week. So, you know, the day, the morning of like her pool day would be one that I I would use. It does neutralize chlorine. Um, it also helps the body to repair the damage from chlorine exposure. Um, it doesn't stay in the body very long, so you can kind of divide that. And like I said, I usually focus on that on like a pool day if she's going to grandma and grandpa's house. Um, and then I would opt for, uh, if it's your own house, you know, to do salt water over chlorine. Um, if, if you have the ability to control the, the pool pH and, and, you know, what you're using to keep the pool safe as far as all of the biological fun that can happen in pools. Um, taurine, if you know that your child, so if you're now, now taking this to the next level, so that's what I do with Stella. Um, oh, and then the last thing with Stella, I um, have her 
like about four times a week on 2000 IUs of our vitamin D balance mm-hmm. blend. Um, vitamin D is super important to enhance optimal function of, of course, immune, um, detoxification, but it does minimize chlorine's effects in the body. And so that's a really important piece of the puzzle on a supplemental level. And then I do the, um, glutathione cream by neurobiologics and, um, that I apply on her liver. I'll link that because that was a question yeah. actually from you, Babo. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, but she just questioned lotion you use on Stella. I think it was to increase glutathione production. So yeah, it's, it's, um, really great liver support, really fantastic after chlorine exposure. It's by neurobiologics and it's a glutathione cream that you apply transdermally to give that glutathione to help to detox the chlorine. Or if we fly on an airplane, you can really watch for like dark circles under your child's eyes as an area of an indicator of if their liver is stressed from exposure to a toxin. Sure. And then what about taurine? This isn't one I've heard before, actually, for chlorine exposure. Yeah, yeah. There's that saying from, like, I don't know if it's through what functional medicine uh, organization, but taurine for chlorine. Um, And so taurine's an amino acid, and it can actually bind to chlorine and remove it from our body. It has, like, a 48-hour lifespan in the body, and so you can take a capsule the morning before going to the swim, uh, and then it helps your body for, you know, that that day even post for maximum effectiveness. And, um, you know, that's one that you would just kind of dose dependent based on your child's body weight. I haven't used taurine with cells um, because I have not observed a lot of neurological back sets. I think that we have to kind of take a moment and decompartmentalize the balance of also water being very calming, Mm -hmm. (laughs) water being a really playful space. And especially in this environment right now with pandemic, um, you know, I think giving, I, I have really craved water time and, um, whether that means being out on the lake, on a paddleboard, on a boat, or just floating in a pool, I find that it really is getting me into a parasympathetic place, maybe more dynamically than almost anything. I don't know. Um, so I think that that's an e- a really important thing to weigh out, um, the healing properties of water, if you will. And, um, you know, the environment of playfulness and, and release. Totally. And again, you know, good, better, best of, if it's your own home and you can control the situation and have a saltwater pool um, versus if it's like a weekly exposure of a family fun time, I think the benefits of that probably outweigh the cost. Yeah. So I would say as long as you're proactive with your vitamin C supplementation and your child is getting supplemented with a vitamin D blend that has K1, K2, that should kind of set the tone. And then if you know they have detox issues, that glutathione cream, and then maybe even the taurine would be an, an added benefit. And then you could even do like an Epsom salt bath. Um, and then uh, we run um, in Stella's room a couple times a week, and she even requests it, essential oils mm-hmm. um, that also help with like respiratory detoxification. And so that would be really supportive as well. Awesome. All right. Let's do this one from Blossoming Brick. <laughs> Um, when to switch from maternal vitamin D to a kid's supplement. So I'm guessing they meant from, you know, vitamin D coming exclusively from breast milk to actual supplementation for kiddos. Oh, okay. So I actually do recommend vitamin D supplementation at infancy and the board of pediatrics is on board with that as well. So, um, our vitamin D balanced blend liquid actually actually has dosing on it for infants all the way through adults. So when we're looking infant through about 20 pounds, which is 
you know, probably around, um, well, I won't say age, but infants through 20 pounds, we're looking at um, trying to get four to five drops of our liquid vitamin D um, three times a week, or that would be like a quarter ml. So one ml of the vitamin D balance blend is 2000 IUs. Um, and so it just depends on whether you want to dose your child daily for consistency to keep things straight or whether you want to dose them a couple times a week because vitamin D is fat soluble. You have that kind of flexibility to do so. So toddlers from the range of 20 to 40 pounds, we would do a quarter ml, that same dosage, but instead of three times a week daily, um, or those five, four to five drops a day. Um, so they're going to be getting about uh, 500 IUs of vitamin D daily once they're in that toddler world. And then as we go up to the 40 to 60 pound children, we're going to 1000 IUs of the vitamin D or 10 drops or a half an ml daily. And then as they reach 60 plus pounds, we go to that range of that half to full. So either 1000 to 2000 IUs a day. So what, like I said, for Stella, I do about 2000 IUs like three to four times a week, give or take. Um, so that does kind of come out to that 1000 um, a day. Awesome. And that's so great that there's flexible dosing from infancy and, and all of that. If you guys didn't catch all of it, it's all on the, the label of our vitamin D balance blend liquid, as well as on that page on our website. So you can check that out. Yes. And you know, now that we are doing vitamin D earlier in age, and I think it is really important because we're seeing, for instance, with even just the pandemic, all cause mortality, that being the greatest influencing mm -hmm. factor of, you know, life or death, the vitamin D status and how severe the symptoms are. Um, and so I think that it is a really important piece of the puzzle. We see the role of vitamin D in kiddos with asthma, eczema. So, you know, dermatitis to respiratory health, to immune function, metabolic health, and so much more. But it is really important to call to action that combination of the calcium regulation in the body. So I would really call out to make sure that if you are supplementing your child with vitamin D, they're also getting that K1, K2 blend. And it's that MK7 that we see the best research on to reduce the calcification of soft tissues. And that's what's going to prevent the um, kidney stones as well as calcification of our arteries. And that's something that we really want to stay on top of with this being a new broad intervention. Totally. And so many of the vitamin Ds out there geared toward kids just don't have that or it'll be like a, a DHA supplement plus vitamin D that doesn't have the K. So watch out for that. All right. Should we do two more? Yeah, I think two more. Okay. Two more. Mm -hmm. Two more. Um, so let's hit this one. What are your thoughts on a plant-based diet from... Uh, a start to one. A start to... The DT, I'm not sure where the... I don't know. Very creative handles, you guys. But thoughts on a plant-based diet. So plant-based or exclusively plant uh, is a difference that I would break down. So I am a proponent of polyphenols and plant-based antioxidants. I think that we are just starting to understand in the literature, the influence of compounds like quercetin and anthocyanins and all of these awesome compounds that can play a role on reducing inflammation, reducing oxidative stress, um, enhancing our metabolic function, uh, reducing tumor activity, and so much more. 
Um, but I also feel that there are important elements of the animal kingdom that are required for optimal health and nutritional status. And there are definitely nutrients in animal products that we cannot get from plant-based foods. And even if available, likely in a lesser bioavailable form or less um, less functional, less able for the body to use. So for instance, like heme versus non-heme iron, plant-based iron is not as biologically available. And um, if we're looking at things like glycine, we're looking at things like um, collagen, um, even taking it a further step out, you know, connective tissue support, you know, you can get vitamin C from your plant-based diet, which can support collagen formation, but you can only consume collagen directly sure. from an animal. And we've seen compelling literature on the function of collagen from anything from vascular health to pressure ulcers to um, you know, reducing cellulite to supporting hair, skin, and nail growth. Um, if we look at another animal-based nutrient like B12, you know, that's a really important one that we see in the world of neurological conditions and really is exclusively made by bacterial fermentation and or animal products. Um, when we look at, uh, what would be another good one to call out, like glutamine, yeah. Um, you know, Carnitine, that's going to be glutamine. Yeah. Um, so, and I'll kind of leave it a little broad. Well, well, you can also listen to our episode a couple back with Dr. Paul Saladino, um, who wrote the carnivore code. And so he calls out carnitine, um, well, he calls them carny, right? Is yeah. The first one. Carnitine, carnicine. That also was on there. Uh, it wasn't torn. Yeah. Carnitine, carnicine, and, um, I don't know. There was another one with a C that he's calling out choline maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, there are a lot of nutrients that we think of like choline great for reducing fatty liver, fantastic for, um, supporting the liver function of detoxification, but also choline is really essential for acetylcholine and our neurotransmitter function. And we see choline deficiency on the rise in America when we're not eating liver or egg yolks. You know, so when we started to remove the yolk from the egg, um, we started to see more choline deficiency, which plays the role with neural tube defect. So I would say my thoughts on a plant-based diet is that I think that plants have a place. I think that animals are made to be omnivores. I think that exclusively animal exclusively plant neither of them are optimal for human nutrition i think that either of them could be pulsed in for a period of time if i had to choose one or the other i'd probably lean more on pulsing in carnivore eliminating plant foods to heal the gut to support autoimmune and then bring back in the plant foods as an elimination diet i think if you exclusively go plant foods you're going to get sicker quicker mm -hmm. um, especially because you're going to eat more of those plant foods, which are going to bulk up the anti-nutrients and some of those effects that are going to interfere with nutrient absorption, and you're going to get higher gut distress. Um, so I think that there is a balance to both. I think that we require both. And I think that when people ask me about like the anti-anxiety diet, can I do it as a vegetarian? I always say, can you eat 10 to 12 egg yolks minimum a week? Can you do fish? Um, and can you do grass-fed whey and or um, uh, yogurt? And if they say yes to those things, then I can kind of make it happen. Sure. Um, so, you know, if you are getting biological sources of protein from some form of an animal, then, then we can likely get through all of the nutrient requirements uh, for whole body health. And I'll link for this um, listener also our episode 43, where Allie and I both talk about our personal transitions from a vegan diet and the evolution in our own, bio, uh, 
our own diets and our own bodies. Um, the carnivore episode that Allie just alluded to, we did one on debunking what the health and um, also that docu- Game Changers, the documentary yeah. this past year. So we've got quite a few that that dig in a little bit deeper. And then deeper. even in defensive plants on the yep. other end of the yeah, spectrum. Exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Talking about Dr. Gundry and Plant Paradox. So I, I think we kind of find a good heavy middle line there. And um, we do believe that plants can stress the body. Um, I don't think that either of us have a perspective that animal products are harmful to the body in any way. So that's the kind of opposing element. Sure. But we do both find that we feel plant matter is essential for optimal health. All right. Let's do this one because I can read their handle <laughs> and I like it. <laughs> Gimme cashews. What would you say to a tween or teen recently diagnosed with prediabetes and depression? Okay. So the first thing I would say is get that teen or tween going with the probiotic challenge. Um, I, I just, that is like the light switch effect, just like I talked for children's sleep. Probiotics are absolutely nature's Prozac. And I will link the literature that I referenced on my Instagram handle a couple months back. Um, and it was by the Journal of Nutrition. It's called Clinical and Metabolic Response to Probiotic Administration in Patients with Major Depressive Disorder, a Randomized Double-Blind Placebo-Controlled Trial. So this is not epidemiology. This is not observational. This is the gold standard of clinical data and understanding how interventions work in the body. And they saw significantly decreased Beck depression inventory scores with the individuals that used a probiotic that had lacto and bifido strains. They also saw that the individuals had a decrease in insulin levels, which is further supportive for the prediabetes element. And they also saw reduced inflammation in the individuals. Their CRP level went down and then glutathione levels went up. So by taking the probiotic, they actually had reduced depression, improved blood sugar metabolism, reduced inflammation, and improved detoxification. All really beautiful things from a simple intervention. So I would get that teen likely on the targeted strength probiotic just to get ripping. Um, That's the 60 billion CFUs of the combination of the lactobacillus and bifido strain. And then if you wanted to know if they needed that much after the first three months, you could do the probiotic challenge using the restore baseline, which is a quarter of that potency. But that's going to be a really great way to hit dual. And again, what sets that apart from something like an SSRI is that you are supporting their enteric nervous system, their brain of their gut to make the feel-good neurotransmitters to enhance brain-body balance. You're not just throwing a dart at one myopic point on a dartboard. You are literally enhancing the dartboard's function. And what you will not get with antidepressants is favorable blood sugar metabolism and favorable impacts on inflammation. So it's pretty powerful testament, I would say, right there. Totally. And double-edged both for the depression and the prediabetes. So yes. Key. <laughs> then I would say, you know, the lifestyle elements, because you've got to get them out of the woods and feeling better mm-hmm. and thinking clearer before you can try to get them motivated to make change. But I would try to spend some time with that teenager and determining what their hook is. So, you know, you don't want to create body dysmorphia. You don't want to harp on weight loss as the priority, but maybe you want to focus on energy or maybe you want to focus on skin health um, or maybe you want to focus on, you know, their school and their testing so that they can get into a good college or whatever it is. So you have to determine their hook 
and then you know find a way to align your support for them to get the outcomes that they want to see. Um, I find skin to be a really compelling one for teens. Oh, totally. That's kind of like yep. the area. That or sports performance, if yes. they're an athlete, are, are usually my two big ones. Yes. So, you know, that's a really great way to then start talking about a low glycemic mm-hmm. diet, which I think is that the big intervention right along with microbiome support is getting them off that blood sugar roller coaster of spikes and crashes bringing them low glycemic and you know you can follow the guidelines in the anti-anxiety diet or the anti-anxiety diet cookbook it'd be a great manual and cookbook for you two to get together and you could fold um, the recipes that look good you could read together the food as medicine elements and then start to connect the dots of how you feel connected to how you're fueling your body and you know food as medicine is this double-edged sword so Maybe you focus on of the five pro-inflammatory foods that I highlight in the diet, you know, corn, gluten, soy, dairy, and sugar. Maybe you first focus on the corn and then you start to clean up the pantry and then you focus on the gluten and then you go forward and, and it can be this layering effect as you go together to support the brain and body health. Yeah, I think that's way better than pulling out the rug and (laughs) throwing out all their favorite snacks at once, for sure. Yes. And then last question I'm going to hit because this one came three times around. (laughs) It's so quick to answer, and Becky can answer this one. Sure. So Solvuga, um, or Solvaga, I don't know, um, mag citrate for constipation during pregnancy. How much is safe? I'm having problems with number two. I think she means poop, not baby number two, uh, because of taking 800 milligrams of progesterone daily. So how much mag citrate is safe for pregnancy and constipation? So I would always start with our relax and regulate first, because I think that can have beneficial impact kind of across the board for other pregnancy related symptoms. And it's going to be much more bioavailable. Um, so starting with a baseline of that relax and regulate for the magnesium glycinate and inositol combination can be helpful for sleep, for leg cramps, for a lot of other stuff that's probably going to come up beyond the constipation, um, and helpful with constipation as well. And that really can be dosed Anywhere, you know, I'd say starting point for that would be one to two scoops, anywhere even upwards of three to four scoops, you know, as needed if you're not going daily. And then on top of that, we could do about 200 to 400 milligrams of magnesium citrate. And I'd pulse that in more so as needed versus as a daily, uh, you know, daily supplement where you do it maybe three times a week or so, because that's going to act more as a stool softener. Um, but not be as bioavailable for absorption and utilization. Most definitely. And then, you know, the good things like staying hydrated, Uh walking, moving your body, all of that as babies pressing on the good stuff. Yes. (laughs) All right. So we hope today's episode was uh, packed with information that is helpful for you and your household. If you loved it, go on over to iTunes and make sure you can leave us a five-star review with a sentence or two of what you are digging. Also, be sure to go on over to AllieMillerRD.com. That's where you can explore our food as medicine protocols as well as supplements. We've listed a bunch of them in today's that are helpful for various interventions. So if we're talking hair health, if we're talking testosterone regulation, detoxing from chlorine, and so much more, um, go on over to Allie Miller RD and check out all the things. And you can get started with a quiz that will suggest supplements to get you going on your optimal health journey. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, 
and Food is Medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.